Nina, that's the next one. Nina, that's the next one. Oh, you can keep going then. <laughs> Behind the scenes. Oh, I'm about to cry. My dad's over here, you guys. <laughs> Moderate, yeah. Right. Um, uh, thank you, Adele, so much. I will, we'll just get started right away. And I thought maybe a nice way to start off the Q&A like would just be to um, ask you to just kind of give us a very brief history about how did you start this project and your journey through it. And, um, you know, I, it's, it's really amazing to see you doing all of these screenings on college campuses and throughout the United States and, and talk a little bit about like how the community has responded to this documentary and then yeah. we'll open it up as well. Well, thank you. Uh, you all are the community, so it's really nice that it's essentially sold out. And I mean, my dad's here, so it really all started here in Portland, Oregon. Um, the nail salon journey, I always thought about nail salons. It was always in the back of my head. So I think as a documentary filmmaker, you kind of like pick up on stories like that. Like, oh, this would be a good story. This would be a good story. But I was surprised at how quickly personal it turned. And I tried to reflect that in the film's narrative, which I don't want to say it's about more than nail salons, but it's about Vietnamese American history and how we got here and what our lives are like outside of the context of war, but always having that be in the back of your mind as well. I mean, I don't mind opening up right for yeah, questions, yeah. too, if you have any. Um, yeah, we'll go ahead and open up to questions, and then we'll take a couple questions at a time. And Yeah. I'll let you point. I'm not going <laughs> to let it point. Yeah, I don't want too much pressure. I almost want to call my dad up here, but I won't. Um, well, the Viet Q population in the U.S. is very different than, let's say, Europe. And I'm sorry to make this take a downward turn, but the Vietnamese people who died in the shipping container, yeah, 
in in right so i mean i don't i don't know if they were from the north or whatever but you have different waves of vietnamese people coming at different times so in 1975 these were south vietnamese people that were escaping and um i'd say that's tapered off although people are always trying to move to the u.s um, I mean, that's a really deep question. I mean, I think that's the kind of question that you need to be asking your community when you go home to Orange County. Like, I almost want to ask you a question now, but we have to keep it. Yeah, I mean, well, how do you feel about that? I mean, how do you feel about the disconnect, the discord between South and North Vietnamese people, communism and South Vietnam and Especially in the OC, especially because that's, yeah. you know. I think about yeah. it a lot. I'm, yeah. I'm mixed in that way. My yeah. dad is from the North and my mom is from the South. Oh, yeah. oh wow. Love story. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. And uh, I mean, you can all connect with me after the screening. I'm also online, you know, nailed it, Doc. There's a lot of interesting young Vietnamese women, trans people in the OC who are answering that question right now as we speak, but we don't know about them. So we need to be more connected to the young people who are asking these questions of, you know, broader Vietnamese American culture and what it means to be Vietnamese or Vietnamese American. Is it possible to get a chair? Hello. Hi. Um, I remember reading an article, like maybe in New Yorker or something, a year or two ago. It was about the nail industry, and I believe the main um, location that this article was talking about was somewhere in the South, maybe North Carolina, South Carolina, and it was um, about the tensions that have come up between the black community of nail providers and the white and the Vietnamese community, and my understanding from the article was is that now the Vietnamese uh, nail really pretty much control the industry from the creation and the distribution of the products and everything. And the gist of this article was about now you know the Vietnamese have done such an amazing job that they at this mm. point are putting up a lot of barriers to entry to other groups who are trying to get in for their own, um, you know, ethnic groups or whatever. So I'm just wondering if, if that's an aspect of the... Um, well, I think the question you're asking is about anti-blackness in the Vietnamese community, which does exist, and anti-blackness exists everywhere. There's also anti-Asian-ness, and I've witnessed that, and so does Salon, for example, Cambodian woman in the Bronx. and. I've seen people come in and treat her like a slave and everyone just keeps quiet and they just keep it moving. Get that money, keep it moving. And that's not healthy. But who am I? I started to say something and the lady started yelling at me. So <laughs> I mean, no, I think that people want to take, of course they do, because they created so much of the infrastructure. So yes, they're there and they do undercut the market. That is true. So it's very frustrating to compete with Vietnamese business model as is. So yeah, that's part of it. 
but they also created a whole market that wasn't there to begin with. So we had to take that into effect. Um, and you certainly don't move the line by accusing a group of people of deliberately keeping other ethnic groups out of a market share, which isn't necessarily even what's happening. Hmm? I was wondering if you got any interviews um, talking about like the downsides of working in nail salons. For example, like my aunt when she immigrated here, like in order for her to like work at a nail salon, she had to be like tutored by one of the workers, not the owners. So then she would have to like work for free for like a year until she was able to like get her own clients but like obviously this is not legal but obviously like yeah this that, happens in many nail salons and i was wondering like yeah this like new immigrant wave of like vietnamese people who are trying to get into this current nail salon like how it's not as a pretty picture as they paint it to be yeah i mean i guess that could be a criticism of the film because it's almost like a love letter to the industry but sure and i was trying to find a character like you a young you know gen wazi vietnamese american woman who like grew up inside the nail salon and felt like she lost her parents to nails because they're just working all the time you know something like that um i just didn't see the downside like that i saw uh, mom and pop salons the owners were working beside their employees from what I saw, if you treat your employees really bad and they know their worth, they'll go to another Vietnamese nail salon. And so I've, I've heard about Vietnamese workers trying to find the best salon. So Yuan Salon, they're part of a network of Vietnamese salons in Oakland, for example, and they get like a green rating, right? So then people start to hear about these better Vietnamese nail salons where, you know, they're not... Um, you know, uh, it's labor abuse if you force somebody to stay at the salon and do all this other free work, you know. But that is part of a negotiation of survival, I guess, and these salons have been um, mechanisms for Vietnamese people to uh, immigrate, assimilate here, learn how to build your own business and spring out and open your own business. So the other side is that sometimes employees might spring out across the street and try to take all your customers, which is what I tried to show with Nail Trap. So that's the issue of making an hour-long documentary. There's, there's the million stories, but nobody asked before I made this film what the stories were inside the salon. So that's pretty interesting. And now a lot of people are doing nail salon-related work that's really interesting in, in Orange County, actually, which I was surprised by. But Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of a testament to Vietnamese women keeping the family together. I'm sure it wasn't easy to get in contact right after the fall of Saigon, but you find a way. Um, I'm sorry, I'm kind of blanking on what the question was, but. Oh, 
I was just curious, or like, if you had found um, information about how people kept in contact or what. Um. You know, there's more research to be done. I mean, I could have made a whole documentary about just that, and there is a film in that, you know, because it has been a lifeline to not only making money here, but sending money home and bringing family members over and giving them a place, sponsoring them, and giving them a place to work, and sometimes abusing labor. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah. Congratulations, that was a, a wonderful piece of work. Thank you. Uh, I'm curious about the intergenerational effects of, of, this, of this industry. Uh, if you look at the uh, Jewish influx at the turn of the last century, uh, a lot of them became tailors. And there was a, a tailoring industry very similar to the nail industry. I'd say it's it's parallel, you know. Yeah. So you have these ethnic niche businesses, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, for example, Immigrants. All, all four of my grandparents were tailors, <laughs> right. but they were bound and determined that their kids would not be tailors. Right. They would, you know, go off and become pharmacists or something. <laughs> right. Same, same trajectory. Yeah. So I didn't pick that out of the air. <laughs> and. So you've got this tension between one generation saying, we've made our niche, we've got our niche, forgive me, nailed down solid, and uh, we've got the niche nailed down solid, but there might be some tension saying, okay, don't do nails, go off to law I mean, I think Koreans are uh, more of an example of that because you see less of the second generation going into it. Uh, New York City is the only place where Koreans historically have run the, the nail industry. Um, so you see uh, those salons employing other ethnic groups, but groups of them, whether they be Chinese, never Vietnamese, um, rarely Vietnamese, or even um, Central American in Manhattan. A very brief question, a different topic. You've pointed to a bi-coastal distribution, you know, Boston, New York, California. Global, here. yeah. Is, is this, is, how, what is the density of this across the United States in, you know, Tennessee or Kansas? You just have to look at the demographic maps, which you can find online where the concentrations of Vietnamese people are, but I know that somebody bought my film in Alaska. I know there's Vietnamese salons there so that's also coming from like an immigrant refugee story like you're willing to go move to those far-flung places to um you know spark an industry there and make money yeah i'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about getting together with oh good question yeah she was very gracious because um this you know uh uh Film, documentary film is about relationships. So Cotuan trusted me and, and, and Kelvin. That's, she called Tippy, they're friends, you know, Tippy trusts her. And we got it together. And there is real genuine love between these women. So it was a real genuine reunion. And they've subsequently met a few years later at Camp Hope, the refugee camp. You know, I wasn't there. It was more of a private gathering with even more of the women and also the volunteers that helped drive them to the nail school, for example. Um, yeah, so it's very genuine, you know? And this is only an hour-long film. We, we shot, like, 
two hours interview with all of them and tippy told some great stories too so i'm working on the longer cut it's going to be on the airlines so watch out Um, <laughs> I think I've seen you somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for um, class today, we read um, a different, we read like a more of like a, what is it, is it called ethnography? Yes. I don't, I don't even, I'm not even <laughs> I know, that term is kind of problematic anyway, so we could, yeah. yeah. It's also, okay, whatever. Anyway, um, yeah, um, we read things like an ethnography, a lot more like really in-depth like sociological analysis. I was curious if you saw, because um, most of this is in English, and um, and I would, so the um, article talks a bit about the kind of the divide between, and, or like maybe a more bit more, more spectrum, I really think of it as a divide between like kind of like English speaking abilities. Oh, of course. Yeah. I wonder, like, I wonder how you want to play out. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I, I've had this translated to Vietnamese because it was important to me that I would be able to share this story with all Vietnamese people, whether or not they speak English good or not. Um, and, uh, you know, funding is a struggle. I did that all with volunteers. So piecemeal, that took me a better part of a year to do, and it's still not right. I need interns. You know, that's very important to me because I would like this to be able to be playing in nail salons on the HDTV, like we like we talked about in class. But with the option with Vietnamese subtitles, which we have, you know, I know my limitations. I don't speak Vietnamese, right? So that's why, like, even if I say speak Vietnamese, I'm not asking the question in Vietnamese. So people have been living here for the past. 45 years are going to talk to me in English, and that's why the movie is in English, and that's the subjective gaze. Right. But that, did you feel that like, um, the divide, the, 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 like, what is the word for it, opportunity divide between owner versus, like, like Of course, person? yeah, definitely, um, definitely. And that's a way to kind of keep power of a salon, too, if, like, you're, the one that's really interfacing with the clients and the money, and it's like, you just have this crew in the back but in a way i'm not saying it's a good thing but it's like they're comfortable doing that like a group of aunties let's say they just work in a big nail salon they're just doing pedicure like assembly line almost some of them prefer that because they don't have to deal with all the demands of the manicure service and all of the art demands that people have now and you can just grind and make your money so there's it's interdimensional. There's not just one way of looking at it. We also have to agree that we're not in that position. So until we are communicating with that person on a real level, like I can't answer that question fully. Yeah. No, I don't think it is. I mean, I think what I put in here is generally how it should be in New York, which is a problem. It's more of a 30-70 thing. But the real estate is so high, that's how it's sort of just justified in a way. But that's the split with the owner keeping um, the lesser part of it. And it's almost like you're renting a booth. And people also negotiate it that way. But for old school mom and pop salons, that's what it is, but they also provide all the product, and then you get tips. So when you're thinking about coming here as an immigrant, you don't speak English, you don't have, even if you have a wild education, how do you run around and get a job, right? People graduate from Reed can't find a job. 
So. No, it's pretty recent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And did you do you look at that uh, comedy sketch as a put down? Did you see the Well, but I'm older, so when that comedy sketch came out, I had already gone to grad school, like you know what I'm saying? I'm sure people Vietnam young Vietnamese people had to deal with non Vietnamese people yelling at that, you know, thinking that's funny and they can't even do the voice right, you know? Um it's kind of problematic, but I always thought, like, how'd she learn to talk like that? And it's because she grew up in San Jose, and she's good at mimicking. But you could see how a Vietnamese person watching a white woman crack up at that might be like, ah. Oh. A lot of people do. That's why I had to put her in the film. I mean, she can she can do it, but you know, if you're just messing around, it's offensive. It's it's offensive if you can do it and you're not Vietnamese. So. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about the comedy skit, um, and I don't know. Her reflections struck me as like a little bit shallow and defensive. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering why you chose to include that in your. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a problematic part of the film. Um, I would like us to like slam her a little bit more, but honestly, Kelvin was a little starstruck by her, <laughs> as was I. I was like trying, you know, I wasn't even trying not to be an asshole. I wasn't being an asshole because she did, you know, she is, um, you know, she's a busy lady. I contacted her manager. They got back to me right away. We set up a date pretty quickly, you know, so she is defensive. In a way, it was important for her to do it because she wants to clear the air a little bit, but she wasn't quite humble enough in that interview. Yeah. Um, uh, why was the interview done over her doing her mouth? Like, was it your idea or her idea? That was her buy-in. That's her buy-in. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's her friend's salon, so that was her stipulation. We had to yeah. film it at my friend's salon, so they get some publicity. You know, it's, an, it's a good Vietnamese salon in LA, and they're doing their things. I find myself thinking about other immigrants I've met from various countries where the norm seems to often be that the woman stays in the home, may not even learn English, and the man is the one that's out in the yeah, I w Vietnamese culture is just different. What, I mean, is it different? my question is, is it different in Vietnam too? With I mean, it's still a patriarchal society, but women, they are like generals. <laughs> so in, in Vietnam, for before these women came, they may have been. They have their own businesses, so that's why they acclimated to it well, because it's oh. like, okay, this is like a small, it's a small shop. Thank just you. like, you know, we've been doing over here for generations. Um, yeah, I. See, that's the dance. That's the cultural dance that Vietnamese women do, and I'm not in the culture like that. It's just observing, but they they allow their men to rise in a way that keeps them at a level where they're like the salon manager. And men did 
um, develop like uh, like uh, men in the film. Like, oh, let's take this to the no- another level. You know, let's let's do this delivery supply business. So, I mean, that's kind of where Kelman comes into. Yeah. I am too. I think about that all the time. We got to, I mean, you guys got to lobby. Yeah, because people don't really care. They like to talk about it, but they don't care. New York Times can do a whole expose, but where's the follow up? Yeah, laws passed, but are you holding the chemical companies accountable in any kind of meaningful way? No. What was your most personal, meaningful interview through the whole process? I mean, the tippy one was more emotional than even kind of transcends from the screen in a way because it was a real reunion. But Olivet and Charlie will always be my favorite characters. And, of course, Kelvin and I have a real friendship. I have a real friendship with Olivet and Charlie, although she's mad I don't speak Vietnamese, so she only speaks to me in Vietnamese. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm better friends with Olivet. Um... Charlie's funny. Charlie did a whole Q&A. We we screened it at the Orange County Public Library. Charlie came, brought brought me flowers, brought Calvin flowers, wearing Aoyai. Because she just put out a book about her experience. So that this triggered that for her. Yeah, yeah. Reflection. So yeah, I think just the act of reflection and when you're working in the salon, you're working all the time, and you're traumatized, like, you're not doing that. But this generation is getting older, so it's a good time for us to come in and collect the memories and put them together in such a way where it represents our culture instead of the dominant culture always telling us who we are because of that war. Um, So it's kind of, like, briefly touched on the film and that, like, men's decisions to join the, like, traditionally, like, female-dominated area and, like, the sort of, like, women's work of doing, like, an aesthetic sort of job. Um, I was wondering if you noticed any other, like, differences between the way that men and women work within this industry Um, and, like, if there were any sort of ways that, like, men tried to reprove their masculinity in these, like, workplaces and just, like, what sort of gender differences you noticed. Yeah. I mean, there's always going to be a little bit of that, but I don't know. I think you, they just under, they're used to a space where women do rule the roost as well. So, yeah, there's always conflict, but it's interesting. Like, everybody kind of works together in a sense. Like, you understand what the split is. You have your role. You, and when they're talking to Vietnamese, yes, they could be talking shit, which is a whole other section. But usually it's just pretty, you know, day-to-day salon stuff. Pass me this, pass me that. Um, men are some of the superstars of the industry, so it's funny like where they take it. There's a lot of stuff that hit the cutting room floor that's like really assembled into scenes. But um, you know, influencers, nail nail art celebrities. Um, Bob Story is uh, an example of one that is kind of common. You know, because this is a safety net industry for people, too. So you can imagine, like, coming out of prison, you're a Vietnamese guy, you know, you were in gang or whatever, 
and you do tattoo stuff already or airbrushing, it's like kind of a good industry for that. How did you meet Kelvin? Oh, through uh, Kim Pham. Like literally like that. And he was just there at the interview with Mike and he was already doing a lot of media, but you know, he's not a filmmaker, so he didn't know quite how to put it all together. So it was just sort of kismet that way. Other questions? Um, yeah, there's an organization called California Healthy Nail Salon Collaborative. They've done some lobbying stuff that has worked to get the chemical companies to actually list the chemicals. But it takes research and studies. So I've met scientists that are trying to get funded, and they can't get funded. So it's a bigger systemic problem of not caring about these people. And with gentrification the way it is, I mean, it's a way to sort of take these salons away. So I'm into education. The only people that are going to change the industry is if they really care about their own health and like understand what the products could be doing since there's never been a long-term study, but they talk amongst themselves and there are problems. And cancer rates are up for everyone. So, you know, there's that, but there's definitely health hazards. And for me, to me, it's the, the dust is a big part of it. Even with a mask, I mean, it has to be like a full-on whatever... T84, is that a calculator? <laughs> there's a certain mask, N5. And, um, you know, and there's so many smart Vietnamese people, engineers, doctors, farmers, whatever. Like, we could do it. We could invent some kind of ventilation system that sucks the and make money, too. But, you know, you can uh, lead a horse to water. They're already, I mean, that's really, that always dominated it, really. Before people even cared about the people inside the salons, it was more about, oh, I can't be pregnant and be in here. So imagine somebody who's working in there and they're pregnant. And, you know, I've seen a lot of kids come out of the nail salon. They're fine. You know, like, Solida was working until she gave birth, literally, to both of her kids. They're fine. But still, it doesn't mean, like, miscarriage doesn't happen. But if it's all, like... Uh, colloquial or whatever and not documented in a meaningful way, then that's a problem. Because you can't get any kind of, uh, you know, legislative justice to, to help you really regulate this industry in a way that's fair. I wonder, um, unless there are any last questions, if you could um, speak about your next project. Oh, God, yeah. Very briefly, and then we'll... Yeah, we'll do, yeah. and then we'll go eat. Um, <laughs> where are we eating again? That's really loud. <laughs> uh, it's called State of Oregon. It's a short uh, that was released by Field of Vision. I'm expanding it into a feature. Um, it tells the story of a 19-year-old black teenager, Larnell Bruce Jr., who was murdered by a white supremacist runover in Gresham. So in the short, I profiled that story, but I've since followed the trial that was delayed for two years and its outcome. And um, it's part of a larger narrative about the history of hate crimes in Oregon that was founded as a white-only state. Um, and the constitutional documents, uh, there's 
people of color, non-white people are actually banned from, from living here. So there's a whole <laughs> reality to this place that we don't talk about um, in the educational system at all, because I never learned about this history, and I grew up here and was a good student, went to public school. I didn't find out about this stuff until I started researching on the internet when I had moved away from Portland. So this past election really got me thinking about what you owe the place that you come from, you know? Like, I left Portland because I didn't felt, feel like Portland appreciated my aesthetic, right? But it is my hometown, and, you know, with hate crimes happening in Gresham, you know, you... Let me see... Let me at least investigate the story and see where it leads me, and it's led me into a larger project. Um, and, and Oregon is a lot... Oregon is a, basically just like every other state in the country. You know, we just have our own unique history. Thank you so much, Adele. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much for coming. And my dad. Can and someone take you. a picture of me and my dad, please? Thank you all for coming. Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Yeah. So good to see you. I know. It's good to see you, too. Yeah, take a picture.